Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly. My guest today is Samantha Bond, Clinical Assistant Professor in the Biomedical Visualization Graduate Program and Associate Program Director for the Undergraduate Life Science Visualization Program at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the Department of Biomedical Health and Information Sciences. She also holds an appointment in the Department of Physical Therapy at UIC. In this conversation, we talk about her path through higher education, the work she's been doing lately in interactive app development, and some of her insights into the field of medical illustration as an educator and active member of the Association of Medical Illustrators on the AMI's PR committee. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Sam and do not necessarily reflect those of her employer. Please enjoy this interview with Sam Bond. I think a great way to kick it off is to ask what made you want to become a medical illustrator? Yeah, um, honestly, it's kind of funny because when I was in high school, uh, a woman named Kim Burleson had told me at the time, you know, she was like, oh, I, I want to go into medical illustration. It's going to be amazing. And I was like, not for me. I'm clearly not a science person. I've never been naturally good at the sciences. So that's just not for me. And I assumed I was going to go into engineering or architecture or something more mathematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I end up going to University of Georgia thinking I'm going to be doing like industrial design or maybe printmaking or something. Um, and they happen to have a scientific illustration program down there run by Jean Wright and Allison Wright, uh, who are certified medical illustrators. Um, and that's how I kind of found out about the field. But at the same time, there was still this really big jumping point because my, my brain was thinking, I'm not a science person. I can't make that switch. I can't flip that. Um, so I, I kind of was encouraged by both Jean and Allison and some of my other art teachers at the time to just give my new science classes a try. Um, and to definitely to my surprise, it turns out that, you know, I, I wasn't naturally bad at the sciences because that's not a thing. I just hadn't really been taught in, in ways that super meshed with my learning style. And I was a naturally bad test taker as well. So I had to, I had to do a lot of maturing and a lot of study skill development to actually, uh, become kind of the, the science interested person I am now. Um, but that was really my, my journey to get here was kind of finding the confidence in the sciences that I needed to actually be able to commit to the career. Right on, right on. Was there a particular area of science you gravitated towards? Definitely clinical anatomy stuff, anything clinically focused. And I don't know why it could have something to do with, um, when I was a kid, I actually grew up with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is, I think, mm. juvenile idiopathic now. So I was always really interested in like clinical environments and working with physicians in general. I was like, oh man, that's so interesting because I was, I was a sickly kid. I was not, not used to the doctor's office at the time. So I think part of the clinical environment and the idea of being able to influence patient care really stood out to me. The second that that became like a practical application that I could put my art towards, like everything changed for me. And I was like, oh, wow, there's this big, there's this big additional meaning to medical illustration that I wanted to, to follow. Very cool. Very cool. So now how did you, okay, so you're in Georgia. How did you end up at UIC? 
exciting part is because I, at the time, and like Gene and Allison were both alum of the Augusta program. And the Augusta program's amazing too. Like, honestly, all, all four of the accredited programs and many of the unaccredited programs are fantastic. So I knew I wasn't going to make like a wildly wrong decision about where to go. But after doing research in the UIC, there was something about the UIC program that was so forward thinking in terms of technology focus. Uh, and when I was at UGA, I was kind of known for being the slightly more annoying student who wanted to go out of the way to take classes in technology. Um, and I ended up getting a new media institute certificate, I believe is what it was called at the time. Um, okay. when I was at UGA that taught me a little bit, a little bit about app development and web development. Okay. And so because I really fell in love with technology while I was at UGA and knowing what I knew from Gene and Allison and knowing what I knew from just researching and the websites and alumni, I, I had this super strong gut instinct that the UIC program was just the right fit for me, you know? Uh, and again, I can't emphasize it enough. I wouldn't have made a wrong decision by going to Augusta. I wouldn't have made a wrong decision by going anywhere, but there was something about UIC that fit for me, I think. Um, and I'm, I'm still very happy I made that decision um, because particularly with the technology emphasis, it's really changed the direction of my career. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, we're definitely going to have to talk more about the tech as, as, uh, the, oh yeah, the for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I, I want to ask a bit about, because I'm not as familiar with the UIC program, so I'm wondering if maybe you could uh, throw a couple names out there. Some, you know, who are some of the other folks at the BVIS program we Absolutely. should know about? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got uh, the the person directing the program right now. Our, our main program director is John Doherty, and he has been an award-winning medical illustrator for decades. I like his work is just absolutely unbelievable. Every time I look at one of his illustrations, I'm just like, I can't do that. That's incredible. <laughs> um, we also have Leah Leibowitz, who is going to be uh, the upcoming program director. Um, she's currently associate program director. Uh, and she's actually Dr. Leibowitz because she recently earned her educational doctorate in adult education, which means that not only is she a certified medical illustrator, but at UIC, she has a whole doctorate now in teaching adults specific areas in curricula. And the cool thing too, is that her entire doctorate project was on improving mental health and graduate programs, which mm -hmm. is already something that needs so much attention in graduate schools in general. Oh, absolutely. You know? absolutely. I know, like absolutely amazing. Um, honestly, I should also just throw out a bunch of shout outs to our undergrad faculty because uh, in addition to teaching in the graduate program, I am associate program director for our undergraduate minor in life sciences, and the teachers we have there are just unbelievable. Like I, I love our undergrad faculty team so much, and that Isabel Romero Calvo and Leah Leibowitz, who teach in the grad program, also teach in the undergrad program. But also in the undergrad program, we have Carol Horesa, who is amazing. Oh yeah, she, shout out to Carol. Yep. Oh yeah, Carol's fantastic. She teaches one of our kind of gateway courses to, to the minor program in general. We get so many students who just say, I couldn't not take more of these classes after taking Carol's class. Yeah. We've also got Kelly Cloninger, who teaches a lot of the techie side, side of things to our students, which teaching that kind of high level tech to undergrads is, 
a very different experience on its own. So Kelly is amazing. Um, and we also have Tina Wheeler and Mindy Whitmore who are just outstanding at teaching undergrads, very traditional techniques. So Tila, Tina will go over like graphite and watercolor and Mindy goes over like anatomical figure drawing and stuff. Um, and then of course- the Mindy great Whitmore of uh, Vitruvian Art Fine Art Studio? Yes, yeah, Mindy, Mindy Whitmore runs Vitruvian Art Studio with her husband and she also teaches our, our anatomical figure drawing class. And the comments that students have made about her class to me, it's like, like they'll say things like, oh yeah, she's the best teacher I've ever had in my life. Like just casually. And I'm like, it brings such warmth to my heart knowing that our undergrad faculty are doing so well in the first place. But Mindy just also just knocks it out of the park every time, you know? Nice, nice. Yeah, I, well, so I get to say that uh, I have been fortunate enough to work with both Carol and Mindy. Uh, so uh, Carol was uh, art director at Body Scientific when yes. I first graduated from school. I worked there for a little while and she totally schooled me on Photoshop in like the nicest way, of course, you know, and like <laughs> always her, she just had this amazing ability as an art director to like look at what you're doing and say, OK, here's how you can improve this. Go for it. You know, and she, like she just didn't she didn't say, you know, this is what's wrong. Fix it. It was always, oh, here's how you can improve it. And let me show you how to do that. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's what makes her so good at working with undergrads, because with undergrads in particular, the way that undergrads differ from graduate students is that not only are they learning the content you're teaching them, they're in the process of learning how to be adults and learning how to learn at a college level. So the way that Carol teaches is so appropriate for them because exactly like you're saying, it's not just no do this, it's no do this in this way because, which is so important. Absolutely. I also wanna throw one last shout out to, uh, to Ellen Weiss, who is our animation teacher for the undergrads. Um, and of course to Christine Young, who is a Lifetime Achievement Award winner from the AMI, who is one of our uh, faculty members at Thetas as well. Amazing, wow, all-star team. Amazing. I know. Yeah, we have, we've got a lot of people. I'm going to feel terrible about any names I left off, but for, for all of you, just know that you're all amazing. <laughs> right on, right on. So that's actually a, a good place to step off into a new direction I wanted to ask you about. The probably most frequent question I see posted online, especially in uh, places like Reddit, but also um, just all over social media are folks who are interested in getting into the field and mm. how best to prepare to do that. And as a professor at the UIC program, you're probably one of the best people to answer this question. So yeah. how can people prepare? Honestly, it's a great question. And I really like the question that kind of accompanies it, which is what are some of the common misconceptions? And I think that's actually a really good place to start because I think one of the biggest common misconceptions we see is that you need to come in with all of this technology training. The reality is we're teaching that part. So we're not expecting you to come in with all of this robust technology knowledge. You don't need to know how to 3D model already. You don't need to know how to use Unity's game engine already. You don't need it to know any of that because we teach that in the program from a starting level. So you don't actually need to spend a bunch of time training yourself on that. Now, the reason for that is that the most important pillars of admission to really any medical visualization program are in science and having a good, solid understanding of science 
and the principles of art, the principles of light on form, the principles of figure drawing, proportion of the body, things that are really important to how we kind of visually interpret and draw information. So I think really, if you're focusing on those two pillars, getting a really solid grounding in the sciences, taking more classes to boost your science GPA if you need to, and getting a good focus on figure drawing and traditional art principles as well. Don't get me wrong. If you already know how to 3D model, woo, what a great benefit as a student coming into the program. That's amazing. But if you're thinking, oh, of all the things I need to focus on, I should teach myself the technology part of it first. Back up, focus on the science and focus on the art because those are really the two big pillars. The rest of it can come after. Right on. Yeah. And uh, now that I, I promise they're not giving me any kickbacks here, but I'm going <laughs> to have I'm going to have to drop a recommendation for Vitruvian Fine Art Studio because they do have online classes. They, they have do. a drawing basics course, the facial ecorche course that Mindy teaches. I mean, Ugh. all of that stuff is exactly what you're talking about. The foundations of traditional exactly. art training. Yes. Huge shout out to Vitruvian because they're just incredible. Yeah, yeah. Now, moving forward and looking at the types of projects and things that people have been moving into recently, I have got to ask you about the work you've been doing in Unity, because I know yeah. you've been working in educational gaming. I would love to hear some of your insights on that. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I think one of the biggest, um, I suppose, insights I have into educational gaming is really just that Nobody is, nobody is currently prevented from getting involved in educational gaming. And some of the coolest stuff out there doesn't actually involve that much programming. So one thing I'd like to mention is that like Unity, the game engine that I commonly use, can create video games that can be used on the PS4, or they can create uh, like Switch games or mobile games or all sorts of stuff. But Unity can also create mobile apps. It can also create like healthcare or data-driven applications. You can hook Unity up to like Google or Amazon databases so that it could, in theory, pull different data information for healthcare apps or mHealth apps and things. So mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things I really want to mention in terms of insight is that Interactive content doesn't have to be this big thing where you have to become a programmer first and then start getting into that. You can actually start using some of Unity's most basic zero coding required functionalities to hop right in and start building things, even if you're not interested in video games and even if you're not interested in programming. It's still accessible to, to almost everyone, which is amazing. Plus, Unity's personal license is free, which is a huge benefit. Plus, plus, Unity just purchased something called Bolt, which is what's called a visual scripting asset. Oh, whoa. Bolt, I know. Bolt used to be like $50 or $70 or something. And then Unity, I guess, eventually decided this is a cool enough asset that allows people to essentially write code by just plugging things in with nodes and stuff. Unity decided this is beneficial enough to our users that we are going to buy this out and have it included with Unity for free. So now is the perfect time. It has never been more accessible for people to start getting into interactive development. And at the end of the day, if somebody tells me, 
oh, you know, you're gonna have so much competition now. Everybody's getting into interactive stuff. I will never be more excited because at the end of the day, there's so many jobs and so many opportunities out there for this kind of stuff. We're not gonna run out of projects or ideas. We just need more hands on deck creating this kind of stuff because we need more people to know that we are capable of creating this stuff. Absolutely. Oh man, that, yeah, that is such a good message. I think that people will love to, to, to know and to hear that even though it is kind of intimidating to learn a lot of this new stuff, it, like you say, it's the best time to jump in because there's so much material out there to learn it and you can pick it up quickly. Oh right? yeah. Oh yeah. And admittedly, I like, I definitely don't want to invalidate the fact that it is intimidating. And to be honest with you, and this is not to insult any programmers or any engineers or any people who teach in those fields, but for the most part, programmers and engineers are not teachers, not necessarily naturally, which means that a lot of the tutorials out there will say, okay, you wanna do this, um, here's how you do it, bye. And they won't explain anything. So the problem is that you're kind of getting information, but it feels like it's just coming out of nowhere. You don't really know why you're connecting any of the dots. So admittedly, part of the reason why interactive stuff is so intimidating is because a lot of the information out there doesn't give an actual foundation in why things are done a certain way. It's just like we were talking about how Carol teaches. She explains the why for it. And without the why, you're not gonna get the information in your head. So all I'll kind of close with there is it's totally understandable to be intimidated and it's definitely understandable to see a tutorial and think, whoa, this isn't for me. But keep in mind, give it another shot and give it the old college try because there are probably tutorials out there that are stronger for your particular learning style, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as an educator, I mean, you're going to know better than most people that having a skill is different from having the skill to teach. Like you can be an expert at something, but still not be good at communicating it if you don't understand educational principles, right? I mean, that's oh, something yeah. I, I still struggle with myself when I'm just trying to talk to collaborators or even my teammates sometimes, I'll realize like, oh man, I'm not explaining this well, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard. Teaching is one of those things too, where I don't know if I was naturally good at teaching when I started. It's one of those things that you definitely have to get used to. So again, this is certainly not to like insult any programmers or engineers who do tutorials and everything, because a lot of the times they haven't had any formal training in teaching. So why would they be teaching it any differently? But at the same time, it's just sort of to say that if those tutorials intimidate you, it's certainly not something that is uh, just specific to you. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, having been spending a lot of time with this software and, and this workflow, what are some of the changes you've made in the way that you approach your production process, knowing how these things are going to have to be used and how they're going to be applied in the software? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think in, in the past six years, since I went through like graduate school training, I think my biggest change has really been that when I was in graduate school, I think a lot of my priorities were the beauty of the application. And now I couldn't care less about that at the beginning stages of my, of my pipeline. I like, I can trust myself 
to make my like actual product as beautiful as it needs to be. But if I don't trust myself to get the functionality done at the beginning, the functionality is going to mess everything up later on down the line. Mm. So I think my pipeline has really changed in the fact that I don't even think about the visuals until pretty late in the process because mm. at the end of the day, the visuals can be added in at the end, you know? Um, like there are certain things that you'll want to spend a lot of time on, of course, but that doesn't mean that they have to happen right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the thoughts I have is how, when you look at a company like Nintendo and their success, what, what the impression I've always had is that they have put the focus on the gameplay first. Like that's first and foremost is like, how is the user going to feel uh, like with these controls with uh, moving this character? Is it going to feel natural? Is it going to be frustrating? Like it always seems like that's first and foremost, they're focused in their game development. I don't know. Oh yeah. Big game studios are always going to want to focus on what's called flow or this concept of getting into the game and not necessarily wanting to stop. And some of this, and like, I'm, I'm kind of overlapping with some of my lectures. So some of my current students might laugh if they hear this, but a big part of this is the idea that you can't really allow someone to just succeed in a game. You have to challenge them. And in order to keep someone in a really good state of flow, you want them to always be on the edge of failing. You want them to be about to win or about to lose all the time. And that's how you keep them in that state of continuing to want to play. Does that kind of make sense? Oh yeah, totally. It sounds uh, really similar to doing art, right? Like drawing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really hard to find that sweet spot between, you know, being engaged with the tools and feeling like you're figuring things out versus getting really frustrated because you're not representing that form just the way you want it yet, right? Exactly, exactly. Because that's the thing, in, in both doing art and in playing games, if it's too easy, you're bored. You're bored out of your mind. If you're like drawing a sphere or if you're playing a game that has zero challenges in it, it's the same experience. You're bored. But flip side, if you're drawing something that you have no idea how to draw and you have no references for it, or flip side, you're like playing a video game that's just catastrophically, like ridiculously hard, like Dark Souls or something, then you're gonna have a much harder time with it and you're gonna feel less encouraged to stay in the game because you're gonna be essentially thinking, well, what's the point? I can't win. Wow. Are you familiar with the author? Uh, I'm gonna probably screw up the pronunciation, but I believe his name is uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. No, I don't think so. Okay, he, he wrote a book called Finding Flow and he basically is like outlining exactly what you just described. Yeah, like finding yep. that flow state, the the intersection or like that perfect balance between challenge and uh, yeah skill level, right? Exactly. Yeah, and it's tough too because not all game players will come in at the same level. So how do you use scaffolding, or how do you kind of how do you allow the user to kind of build up their own skill without getting bored or without getting frustrated with the process? and still allow for the wiggle room of players coming in at different levels. Like it's, it's a challenging process game design is, you know? Oh, absolutely. Especially with all the different apps involved. I mean, th th so this is something I also wanted to ask you because 
this is really common in the 3D workflows, whether you're doing animation or gaming, you're using a ton of different pieces of software, right? It's usually not just one or two. So what are some of the other pieces of software that you use uh, regularly in your production process? I'd say pretty much anything 3D modeling based, I go back and forth between 3ds Max and ZBrush. A lot of this is because of how often I use what's called blend shapes in Unity. And for those of you who have used blend shapes in Maya, it's the same concept. For those of you who have used morphers in 3ds Max, it's the same concept. Uh, and you can actually take layers in ZBrush, convert them to morphers in 3ds Max or blend shapes in Maya, depending on your workflow. And bring then, those yeah. into Unity and you can attach those morphers to slider animations or different, different animations in your scene. You can do a bunch of stuff with blend shapes. So I think honestly, one of my most common workflows is going ZBrush, 3ds Max, Unity, so that I can get my models looking nice. I can get some of those morphing blend shapey animations in 3ds Max. And then back over in Unity, I could actually make those interactable and engaging. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. In Cinema 4D, I think they call them pose morphs, but they yeah, have some yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. so. I think that's what it is. Yeah. I'm not a C4D user, so I'm not sure, but still. Oh, no worries. No worries. Yeah. That's, that's really the cornerstone of a lot of these kinds of animations and deformations is you're recording like two different states of an object. And then you exactly and mesh deforming between those two states. Yeah, it's interesting. You learn something new literally every day. Just a few hours ago, I learned about this new type of a uh, 3D file. I don't even know if it's a new type of 3D file, but it's a .abc, and mm. it will allow more mesh deformations to be taken, like spline deformations, um, to be taken from 3ds Max into Unity. So. I mean, if, if that's one other kind of takeaway from this whole thing, it's that you will never, ever stop learning in the field of medical illustration. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think uh, I know FBX files can have some additional properties sort of baked into them, but I don't they know about but they can't have like spline mesh deformations but oh, okay. i don't know we could we could always talk about the like super intense techie stuff later too but <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough fair enough cool well let me ask you you know technology obviously this has a huge impact on our industry and i'm just wondering what you think folks who are either entering the field now or who are currently working in the field what do we need to be aware of that's coming down the pipe Oh, uh, yeah, that's such a good question. And I think my, my answer to this for a couple years now has been haptic technology. Mm. Uh, and to clarify what haptics means, if you think about like when you're holding a video game controller, when you bump into something or you pick up something, it might rumble a little bit, like it'll give mm -hmm. you a little vibration. Or like in VR, if you pick up something, it'll give a little rumble in, in the controller. And what that's called is haptic feedback. And the idea is that the entire experience feels more immersive because the physical sense of picking something up is now that like that's now a signal that's being sent. You're feeling something happen in this hand as you're seeing yourself grabbing something. So all of a sudden, it's significantly more immersive. Part of the reason VR isn't quite as immersive as it could be is because Let's say you're in a VR experience where you're sitting on a beach doing yoga. Are you sitting on a beach, feeling the wind on your face and sitting in the sand? No, 
if I'm doing this, I'm sitting in my little like VR space back there, like in a, in like probably on my dirty carpet with a bunch <laughs> of cat hair on it, staring at my cat now, you know, um, but yeah, like it's not the same feeling. And that's part of what makes VR not as immersive as people kind of want it to be. Mm. We're not at that point technologically to simulate that kind of feeling. So what we can do instead is add in as much haptic information and haptic feedback as we possibly can to start simulating more of the physical senses that you would have in that environment. Now, all that said, like the beach example, are we gonna be able to get to that point with haptics? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Probably question mark, but that's, you know, years down the line. And the cool thing about technology in general is that as time passes, exponentially more and more and more things will be developed and come out and things will just start to move more and more quickly um, as they have been for like years now. Uh, so will more haptic feedback stuff come out soon? Probably, but I don't know. And I'm actually kind of excited by that. Right on. Something to be aware of, something to look into. Definitely. Yeah. Now, I, I saw you had uh, participated in a health tech jam. Ah, yes. Uh, so I actually did last October. Yes. So it's not a participation thing. It's oh. my baby. Oh, my yes. It's the uh, Department of Physical Therapies, technically, um, because I actually work for both the Department of Biomedical Health and Information Sciences in the BVIS program at UIC. But I also have a tiny little 5% appointment in the Department of Physical Therapy. And a lot of what I do with PT is sometimes I'll do like clinical illustration work because they have like a PT practice at UIC. Um, so sometimes I'll help with stuff like that. But a lot of what my appointment goes to is this annual health tech jam. And what this idea came from, uh, and it was an idea really spurred between both me and Liza Nipsher when Liza was a student. Liza currently is the lead interactive developer at Barrow Neurological Institute. But when she was a student, we just kept thinking, how can we get Beta students in a game jam? Wouldn't it be awesome to get Beta students in a game jam? And for anyone who doesn't know, a game jam is essentially a like anywhere from 12 hours to 48 hours or more or less where you just shove a bunch of people in a room, break them up into teams and say, all right, you have this much time, go make a game. And they just have to rapidly ideate and prototype and collaborate and work together. And we kept thinking, is there any way for us to get Viva students in this kind of experience where not only can they work with each other and make something game jam-esque, but maybe work with other, B or other UIC students so we kind of came up with this idea of bringing in PT students so that PT students could be a part of technology design, technology ideation, bringing their clinical experience and their PT knowledge to the table. So now what it has become is this big event for PT and OT and College of Medicine and anybody who really wants to come, even undergrads, and we break them into these random teams of like a couple of UIC Beavis students, a couple of PTs, a couple of OTs, and we basically just give them prompts gotten specifically from the community 
So we take survey data from the community, make questions and prompts from that, and then say, okay, this is a problem in public health. What kind of technology can you create to solve that problem? Now, in 24 hours, do these students actually make a full app? No, because we don't want them <laughs> sacrificing hours and hours of sleep. We are, we place a lot of value on work-life balance and mental health in general. So we're not gonna say, oh, hey, we value mental health. Now stay up for 14 more hours in the day and right. make this app for fun. Like, we're not gonna do that. But what we will do is give them like, probably we recommend, I think like six hours of just working on it for like a weekend. And then when they come back together, they present a pitch. So not necessarily a fully developed app, but a fully designed concept. And the core principles that we judge them on really are whether they've met the prompt. Did they listen to community feedback? Did they understand what the public health problem was? And did they propose an idea that would actually contribute to that? Or did they just kind of come up with an idea that they liked and not think about the public health part of it, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Now, having having done this, uh, I'm really curious if you have any advice on, because what you're sort of describing here to me sounds like a true multidisciplinary team building exercise. It's not just necessarily the project pitch, but it's also getting people familiar with working together with with folks from different areas exactly. yeah, what 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 sort of advice might you have to help for other people who want to build those kinds of experiences oh my gosh contact me first off <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested in making a health tech jam at your institution please reach out to me i'm happy to talk through my experiences but i think the biggest piece of advice is getting other people into the into the process of planning as soon as you can. I think the first year that I did this, I kept thinking to myself, like in Liza and I kept thinking the same thing, like, oh, this is so nerdy. Nobody's gonna be interested in this. Like we, are, we were excited about it and we knew some of the students were excited about it, but we were like almost kind of embarrassed to talk about it to other faculty because we were like, this is such a silly thing. But this last year was the third year that we had run the Health Tech Jam and we got a record number of participants, even though it was virtual this year for COVID and everything. I think we got 80 participants total. Um, so we had like 10 different teams of students pitching apps, which is huge. But I think part of the reason it was so much more successful the second two years is because those were the moments when I actually reached out to my colleagues and said, come join the planning committee. Please come at, like, let's make a planning committee and not just have it be like, me throwing my own opinions in there. If there's one thing I've learned just in my career in general, it's that, you know, there there is a too many cooks in the kitchen line to draw, sort of, but for the most part, the more the merrier, in my opinion. Like, mm. I want more collaborators. I want more people's voices. My own voice alone doesn't really mean much, but everyone's opinions coming together and contributing to one common goal is so much more meaningful because you have more diverse perspectives. It's so important to get other people involved for that reason, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I really think you hit the nail on the head there with the idea of getting folks involved early, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the ground level. Yeah. Now, so, because I, I think this does come up with especially animation projects and I'm sure with game projects as well, where in the later stages, 
you've started to, you know, build all this stuff up and it becomes a little bit more challenging to go back and make major revisions when you get towards the end of a project. So what maybe advice or tips do you have for folks when, when you have these projects with a lot of stakeholders involved, how can you sort of keep everyone on the same page so that like when you get to the later stages, you know, everyone sort of knows like, okay, let's not pull the foundation out of the building here. Yes. Yeah. Well, scope of work for one, writing a good, clear scope of work and statement of work document right at the beginning where you outline not only exactly what you're doing, but exactly what you're doing for each individual set of checkpoints and who needs to approve those checkpoints. That way, if you have to go back and redo a step, you can have a clause that says, you've already approved this. So if you're making me go back and do more work, here's my hourly rate to go fix that. So it's not to necessarily light more of a fire under the clients, but it is to just sort of emphasize the point that I will have to go back and do work if this process gets screwed up somewhere along the lines. And that's part of their responsibility. Um, and I think when you make that super clear up front, everybody's fine with it. I think one of, the, one of the things that I feel like I see a lot when I hear people talk about like business and working with client relationships and medical illustration is almost this like underlying idea that the client isn't the enemy or that the client is the enemy. The client's not the enemy. If the client's, you're on the same team as the client. You're trying to do something together. So if you approach, the, if you come to the table thinking, negotiation time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the best possible deal I can get from this. It's not that you shouldn't do that. Do not let yourself get underpaid, but also don't approach it from the perspective of how can I get the most out of this contract? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a great point. I, I think that is something that can catch up a lot of folks and especially over time, you know, you can kind of have your guard up you know, if you've had some, some negative experience. Oh, of course. Yeah. But uh, no, but that's great advice to, you know, approach it with, you know, just a positive attitude and also putting the emphasis on the communication. Right? Exactly. Exactly. The more information, the better, you know, like, don't get me wrong. Like if you, if you do a bunch of work up front and you send that to them and it's like, oh, they're not going to prove that that's a waste of time. Of course, that's a waste of time. But if you plan everything out in your contract ahead of time, you write out all of the scope of work that you're going to be doing, and you put specific checkpoints in there and communicate who needs to see those and when, you're going to be golden because all of that has already been decided and signed off on by both sides. That's awesome. That's awesome. So now in the program, when you're teaching students, because we had mentioned before that this is, this is a challenge for a lot of students to kind of get their heads around, what sort of uh, tips or strategies have you implemented with students to sort of help them think in this business sort of mind frame as they're working through projects? Oh, that's a great question. Ooh, well, one of, and this will be, this will be another good shout out to throw out there. One of my collaborators over the past few years has been Deb Haynes down at University of Tennessee. Uh, and Deb works in the College of Veterinary Medicine. So a few years ago, um, one thing that I noticed was our students really wanted to get more client facing or client focused or client driven projects while they were in the program. So that they had a chance to kind of practice that interaction with faculty support there, you know, so that it's not like the first time they're ever emailing a client or emailing the content expert. 
it's like when they've graduated and it's like their first job, right? They don't want to be that intimidated right at their first job. So what we did is we brought in Deb as kind of the fake client for that semester. Mm. And she essentially introduced this, almost this like research problem of, we have all of these students in the College of Veterinary Medicine. They need to learn this. It's really hard to have more than one of them learn it at once. What kind of interactive tool can we develop to let them all train in this, not necessarily on site? So that kind of project setup has been just unbelievably beneficial for our students because they get to kind of work through those business problems in a way that is like a rough draft or a dress rehearsal and not necessarily the moment where money is writing on the decisions, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. That's awesome, man. That is so cool to hear you guys are doing that. That, you know, that's one of the benefits to going to one of the accredited grad programs. I think, you know, previous guests have sort of mentioned this, that one of the things that grad programs help with is sort of teaching you how to learn or how to approach analyzing information. What, what are some of the things you've learned about learning, you know, that, that uh, you might be able to share? Oh, that's such a good question. I think the biggest thing that I've learned about learning is just all of the, all of the principles behind multimedia learning, like Mayer, the researcher, I think our students probably cite his work like a thousand times per paper or something, but uh, Mayer's principles of cognitive learning theory and multimedia learning theory are probably the bigger like learning principles that I have really developed a pretty big relationship with since I've been at UIC. Um, although admittedly, something that not a lot of people know about me is that I'm currently a PhD student uh, in Whoa. rehabilitation sciences. Yeah, I just finished my, uh, my coursework for that, so that's exciting. And to be honest, I think the biggest thing I've learned about learning has been through my time as a learner in, in this PhD program, rather than through my time as a student or as a teacher in the Beavis program. Now, the reason I say that though is because I didn't start my PhD program until two years after I started teaching in Beavis. And the amount of insight that I gained into how to be a student after I started teaching was enormous. It was almost like by being a teacher, I, I saw my own behavior as a student through this very new lens. And I was able to look at things that my instructors had developed and see kind of the, the like learning pedagogies behind them, which was a completely new experience to me as a student at the time, right? So I think probably my biggest piece of advice for anyone who is looking to learn that kind of learning is to read through your, your instructor's materials, read through the syllabus, read through the learning outcomes, the stuff that a lot of students tend to skip over when they read through the syllabi, read those, get an idea of what the learning objectives are for each of your assignments. That way you're not just thinking, what do I do to get this number of points? You're thinking, why am I doing this? What is the core objective of this assignment and how can I meet that objective? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that uh, speaks to some of the qualities that I see in a lot of the folks in our field of, you know, being just hopelessly curious, you know, constantly curious and like, and, and like you say, asking why all the time, you know, the focus on details, you know, I think that's definitely a quality I see in a lot of medical illustrators. 
What are some qualities you look for that you notice like in students, this is going to be a strong student because maybe they have this quality or that you think maybe employers in studios might be looking for, you know, yeah. what, are some, what are some qualities that, that people want to cultivate? Yeah, I think definitely, honestly, my biggest thing is a good attitude. If you approach, if you approach a project with a good attitude, you're just starting on the right foot. Whereas if you approach a project with the womp womps, which is kind of what I refer to as that, that attitude of like, oh, this is not going to be fun, or oh my god, they're going to underpay me, or oh, this client is going to be really hard to work with. Like, if you come in with these ideas ahead of time that it's going to be miserable, of course you're going to be miserable. So I definitely like to look for, look for students that, like, for example, if I'm thinking about who I want to work with in research advising, I love working with students that have those good attitudes. That is to say, though, Honestly, we don't really have any students with bad attitudes. I feel like the students that come into uh, the graduate programs are generally very, very well equipped for grad school. So fortunately, that's not a huge problem with students, but with collaborators, on the other hand, if somebody approaches a project and they're clearly like not having a good time and they have kind of a bad attitude about the project, that's kind of a red flag to me. Mm. The other big thing, practicality wise, be on time. Please be on time. Everyone should just be on time everywhere. It would make my life easier. It would make everyone's lives easier. Now that said, if you're late to something, just say, oh, I'm so sorry I was late. And, you know, just manage your time a little bit better in the future. But punctuality just makes such a big difference in terms of relationships with clients and relationships with collaborators. Because by not showing up on time to somewhere, you're essentially saying, you're waiting on me because your time doesn't matter and mine does. And I know that's not what anybody actually means when they're late to something, but it's an important thing to remember. So more of the abstract idea is having a good attitude, more of the concrete idea, just be on time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. No, that's, it's good advice good, and good to keep in mind. You know, looking forward into the field, I think you probably have some really good insights into like where things are going. What do you think is the best case scenario? For the future of medical illustration? I think one of the best case scenarios will be that we continue our upward slope in West Coast techie startup culture. Currently, we're already on a very upward trajectory where medical illustrators are being hired by all sorts of techie startups. And I think that's amazing. And I think the best case scenario for medical illustrators is that we continue really lifting up our name. We continue allowing people to know who we are as medical illustrators and knowing what our field can do in the first place. Because the more people know about what we can do, the more our field is going to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. I think sometimes there is, you know, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think there is sometimes sort of like this um, zero sum game kind of mentality that sometimes can creep into all of our minds. Right. I mean, the, com the competition can be, you know, sort of stressful, but I always try to remind myself that competition is really just a driving force to just keep improving. Yeah. I think, I mean, competition is one of those things where it's super helpful for some people and it's super unhelpful for other people. And that's okay. You don't have to be motivated by the same things other people are motivated by. I know for me, I remember when I was going through the program as a student, I had classmates saying like, oh, I hate, I hate when people are competitive. It's awful. 
I remember feeling a little bit of shame because I was like, I kind of like inner, inner senses of competition. The line that I realized I had to draw was that I'm allowed to compete with myself. I'm not allowed to put other people in a position where I'm making them compete with me because frankly, that doesn't, nobody else really matters. I'm competing with me. I'm competing with my own skill level. Absolutely. None of the rest matters, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I answered your question there, but. <laughs> no, no, I think, I, th I think that does because yeah, I've, I've sort of come around to that same thinking myself. It really is about competing against, you know, your prior self, the work you've done in the past. You know, when I look at the drawing that I'm doing these days, I'm not trying to com compare myself with all the people I see on Instagram who are just crushing yeah. it, you know, but yeah. like, I'm, I'm looking at my old sketchbooks, you know, I'm looking at how I used to draw and that's, that's what I'm, I'm trying to like, you know, just keep elevating with speaking of yeah. which, uh, your, your drawing skill. I mean, we've been talking so much about uh, <laughs> the interactive and, and the unity stuff, but your drawing skills are really on point. I have to say. Oh, thank like, you. Thank yeah, you so much. That's so kind. <laughs> yeah, no, totally legit. Love, love your uh, posts on Instagram, you know, just all the stuff on social media. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> We're, we're getting towards the end here, but I just wanted to ask, you know, what, what are some things you're looking forward to in the coming months? Ooh, things I'm looking forward to. Definitely the AMI conference is coming up. Um, and it's actually where I'll be announced as a fellow of the AMI because I just found out like three hours ago that uh, I got my, my fellowship officially. So that's exciting. I had a secret goal of getting my, my fellowship before I turned 30. So right at the last second there. But other than that, I know that UIC is actually turning a hundred this year, Whoa. which is, I know, like a huge deal. So uh, on Monday, October 18th, I believe is when we're doing our uh, centennial celebration. So our alum and friends will be getting uh, invitations to that or save the dates to that relatively soon. But I'm really excited for that too, because a hundred years is quite the landmark. Absolutely. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. No. Otherwise, I'm going to be seeing my mom and my sister in August, and I could not be more enthused about that. <laughs> <laughs> and now what, like, what does that involve as far as like becoming a fellow? And then once you become a fellow, what does that mean? Yeah. So basically, in order to become a fellow of the AMI, you need to earn a thousand points of service. Now, the points are determined by, I believe, the fellowship committee. Oh, I don't even, oh gosh, I don't even know if I, they're a committee bad AMI member. Um, but uh, you have to earn a thousand total points. And I think like submitting to the salon, for example, one salon submission is like 10 points. And then chairing a committee is like 70 points or something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but the more you do and the more active you are in the AMI, the more points you earn. So once you've gotten a thousand points, you become a fellow. And as far as I know, all it really means is that you get to add the fellow of the AMI letters to the end of your title. And I, I joked with John, uh, like, you know, it's, it's academia. The more letters, the better. Um, <laughs> but regardless, you know, I'm, if anything, it's just a point of pride to know that I've been involved enough with my professional association to be able to say that about myself, you know? Right on, right on. All right. And then you are on the PR committee. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Call for volunteers. If anybody wants to get involved in PR, social media, articles about us, please contact us. We're always looking for more people. So we do pretty much all AMI social media. That includes LinkedIn, 
Instagram, Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter. It also includes potentially new channels. So if you're sitting there thinking, why doesn't AMI have one of these? Come talk to us and maybe we can think about proposing something like that. But right now, if you're wondering why we don't have a certain channel, it's maybe because we don't have you on board to tell us that we need that or to help us create the content for those channels. So on social media, a lot of what the job entails is really creating images, creating content or finding content online that we can share relevant to our membership and our viewers. But in addition to social media, we also do earned media where essentially we kind of look for interesting topics in medical illustration, write up little pitches, gather people from the AMI who might be willing to talk to journalists about it, and then send that information out to journalists into the world and say like, hey, you might want to write an article on this cool topic in medical illustration. You can talk to this people. And ideally, journalists then say, great. And then they write amazing articles about us. I know in the last year, we've gotten one article in Wired, which was amazing. Nice. Um, so we're really just hoping to continue elevating the field and letting people know that we exist. Amazing. That's awesome. Sam Bond, thank you so much for joining yeah, me today. This has been course. awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy I got to join. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'm just, I'm, I really admire the work that you've been doing with this podcast. This kind of stuff is really just elevating our field and letting people know that we're here. So I'm so appreciative and thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you to you as well for listening. A really big thanks to Sam for sharing her time. If you're listening to this episode near its release date, the Association of Medical Illustrators annual meeting is coming up in just a few weeks. The AMI will be hosting over a week of virtual talks from July 20th through the 30th of 2021. So be sure to check out the meeting website and see what's on the schedule. You can go to ami.org or go directly to the meeting site at meetings.ami.org slash 2021. I also wanted to mention a recent collaboration I did with the learnmedical.art team based in the UK. We've done a few podcasts together, the most recent of which was an interview with Annie Goff, who is a med legal illustrator. She recently published a book, Injury Illustrated, How Medical Images Win Legal Cases. This is a fantastic resource for anyone interested in the field to learn more about the fascinating world of med legal illustration. So grab a copy of the book and listen to the full interview on the Learn Medical Art podcast. Annie Campbell and Emily Holden of LearnMedical.Art, Annie Goff, and Sam's colleague Leah Leibowitz, also one of my former guests, Dr. Gail McGill, all will be presenting at this year's AMI, as well as yours truly. I'll be presenting on video production workflows for surgical educational videos with my colleague Jean Lin, and presenting a tech showcase on 3D Flow Zephyr for using photogrammetry to produce photo-based 3D models of biological specimens. So until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.